do you believe that Boris Johnson lied? And the vast majority, the overwhelming majority, Daniel, said, yes, he absolutely did. Okay, follow-up question. What has that done to your level of trust in the Prime Minister? For half of them, it eroded it. For the other half, it increased their trust in him. How can you trust someone that lies to you? Here's the response. He told my lies. Welcome everybody to A Load of BS, the behavioural science podcast with me, Daniel Ross. Following last week's conversation with Sir Michael Barber, today I'm talking to Steve Martin. Steve is a behavioural science practitioner at heart as a leading member of Dr Robert Cialdini's consultancy, Influence at Work, where he heads up the UK practice. So you should have some clues now to today's theme. Steve is a Royal Society nominated author and a co-author with Bob Cialdini on a number of books, including their most recent tome alongside Dr Noah Goldstein, Messengers, Who We Listen To, Who We Don't and Why. And that's a timely exploration of why some people in society are listened to and why others are ignored regardless of the truth or wisdom of their message, and that's a subject we address today. In all, Steve's books have sold in excess of one and a half million copies. He's a visiting professor of behavioural science at Columbia University Graduate School of Business and a guest lecturer at the London School of Economics and Harvard too. His persuasion column in British Airways' in-flight magazine is seen by over two million people every month and he's a regular contributor to the Harvard Business Review. So next time you're flying BA, why not flick through the magazine Beyond the Perfumes and Chocolates and be persuaded by Steve? In advance of finding a flight on BA, in this show, we talk about the influence of Bob Cialdini on behavioural science, small bigs creating big impacts with small changes, why self-confident ignoramuses are so often believed, and why thoughtful experts are ignored, and indeed how you can trust someone who lies to you. Let's get right to it. Steve, welcome to A Load of BS. I'm delighted you're here for a natter with me today. I'm delighted too, Daniel. Really good to meet you. Fantastic. Now, just in case anyone is tuning in to listen to American actor and stand-up comic Steve Martin, you're in for a treat because while I don't have the star of Father of the Bride and Planes, Trains and Automobiles with me, I do have with me Steve Martin, one of the foremost behavioural scientists of the last 20 plus years and who alongside Robert Cialdini is one of the pioneers, the great exponents on the subject of influence and persuasion. Now, I think however you divide your time between work, home and social life, understanding the tricks of the trade to win an argument or to bring someone on side seems to me a set of skills we're all striving to master. Now, for those listening who are not familiar with Bob Cialdini's work and contribution to behavioral science, Steve, I wonder why we might start off. Do you want to just briefly summarize the key principles of Bob's thinking and which are clearly such an important part of your thinking still today? Sure, I'd be happy to. So, I mean, Bob is a genius. I would say that. I've been a colleague and a friend of his for over 20 years now. One of the things that he did, and I think it's really important to remind people or to perhaps even inform people of this, they may not be aware of this, is that the original work that Cialdini undertook started in the late 1970s. So I know a lot of us are looking at behavioral science as the new thing, the new kid on the block. But when it comes to Bob's work in social influence theory, it's, it's got an established history of 45, close to 50 years now. And what he did back in the 1970s was to ask himself a simple question. Beyond information and incentives, 
what are the factors that lead someone to say yes to a request? Not because necessarily there's something instructive about what's being said, but rather there's something influential about what's being said. Not what is being said, but rather how it's being said or the timing of it. And the work was truly pioneering. It resulted in a book, Influence, The Psychology of Persuasion, still a bestseller today. It's over close to 6 million copies now, I think, and is one of those, I guess, kind of fundamental books of any behavioral scientist's library. And it describes in the early editions, six universal principles of influence, um, recently updated to include a seventh principle. And those principles are reciprocation, liking, unity, social proof, authority, consistency, and scarcity. And I'm Sure, Daniel will probably talk a little bit more about each of those in turn over the course of our time together. But the important factor, I guess, to underline when it comes to thinking about these principles is if one of these principles is available to you legitimately in a situation, and any influence situation, it's highly likely that at least one of them will be available to you. A communicator, a persuader who incorporates effectively, importantly, ethically, that principle into their communication can significantly sometimes increase the likelihood that that audience will engage with them and be persuaded by their request. That's essentially the proposition and what Bob found. I mean, the book, as you say, The Psychology of Persuasion, I think that's nearly 40 years old now since the first edition right. came out. But before then, were there any frameworks for how we discussed influence or was Bob really the first to codify it? I think there were a series of frameworks. I mean, you look at Richard Petty's work, for example, uh, Shelley Chaikin with the elaboration likelihood model, those kind of things as well. They were largely theoretical in nature. They were offered up in peer-reviewed publications as a way of processing information. I mean, similarly with you know the system one, system two thinking, that kind of aspect. What Bob I think did, which was the real genius behind the work here, was to essentially codify it in a way that was accessible to all of us. You didn't have to be knowledgeable about a particular element of social psychology or, or social science more generally to understand what was actually being said. You know, No one goes around going, have you heard about the elaboration likelihood model? They don't. They talk about social proof or they talk about X or Y. So it provided, I think, an accessibility, as well as a, you know, a kind of codification of how anyone can increase their influence, their ability to persuade others. Again, importantly, in an entirely ethical and honest way. Absolutely. And that's key, of course. I mean, was Bob then the influence who inspired you into this field? I mean, what drew you to the subject matter and indeed him? Well, like most things in life, I'd love to be able to tell you a story about how I planned to be where I am today and to do all the things that I've been very, very lucky to be able to engage in. But my story is primarily one about good fortune and good luck. So I'm a psychology graduate. I had read Persuasion originally back in, I think, 91, 92. And I was seeking ways to employ it in a role that I had in a large corporation I was actually working in. And we had some nice budgets, we had a need to kind of apply this kind of work. And so I made the call to Arizona State and actually wanted originally to kind of engage this great guru of social influence in some of the work that we were actually doing. And then a few things happened that resulted in me <laughs> being able to go over in, in early 2000 and work directly with Cialdini. And that was, say, 20 years ago. So having trained with him and under him and then subsequently published and written books with him as well, that, that's how it came about. But it was primarily a set of good fortunes and good luck that we came together. 
often the way with the life, isn't it? Now, of course, as you say, you know, Bob set the benchmark for writing on persuasion and influence, and you've collaborated together now for over 20 years. You've written books together. You know, while there's always, of course, more to say on the subject, and indeed, Bob revises his work ongoing, how do you build on the subject? What new perspectives are you introducing? Where do you find new inspiration on the subject matter? Well, everywhere, actually. Daniel. And one of the reasons that I give that broad universal answer is it's hard to identify situations where an ability to engage, influence and persuade others isn't needed. You know, whether you are a parent or whether you are new to the workplace or whether you are a leader in an organization, you are a leader of a country, you work for a charity, perhaps seeking to gain the help of persuade people to help or in the cases of things like climate change and conservation, you know, encouraging tens, thousands, hundreds, millions of people to change. There's always a place for these insights. And that I think is the inspiration for me is that every single day, new questions get presented to us, new inquiries come in. And what's remarkable is how different they all are. But at their very core, there is a need to affect influence, to have some change. That's what keeps me going. And we don't see it stopping. If anything, it's just going to continue to increase this interest. I mean, which does lead me to a question which I do reflect on a lot, which is the immunization of influence techniques. Now, for example, one of the nudges that you're well known for is persuading people to pay their taxes on time by informing people of a large number of people who do pay on time. There's absolutely no deception there about it. I don't know whether, by the way, in parentheses, you're sick of being uh, connected with this (laughs) nudge. I mean, maybe it's definitely a compliment, clearly, because it had such influence. But the reason I reference it is just as a prelude to say, you know, as research and writing on the subject of influence and persuasion becomes ever more mainstream, with Bob's name increasingly recognized, are we becoming desensitized to the effects or are we just so hardwired to reciprocate or to respond to social proof or to respect figures of authority that familiarity with the principles is irrelevant? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. And it's one we've pondered many, many times and for many, many hours. So at their heart, these principles are effective. The reason they have such a potent and powerful influence over us is that they largely lead us in the right direction. You know, I I think often there's a conversation in the behavioral sciences about rationality versus irrationality, these kind of things. I'm not entirely sure how helpful those kind of conversations are. The thing that I would point out here is, is that let's take the norm of reciprocation. The reason why it makes sense to give back to others the form of behavior that has been given to you first, most often, is that it creates a meaningful connection between people. It allows people to cooperate, to deliver something more collectively than they would do if they were operating as an individual. So, you know, these principles are inherent. They are so foundational because they largely lead us to good decisions. Where they lead us in directions that are perhaps less helpful is in certain circumstances, if they're being exploited by someone who is clearly motivated to move someone in a particular direction for their own means and not for someone else's. The point about the immunity of these effects, I guess it's possible, but I suspect that what people become alert to is the tactic that's being used as opposed to the fundamental underlying behavioral aspect that's causing the effect, the mechanism. So let me give you an example. 
And let me move away from the tax letter one and social proof. I think one of the reasons why I think that social proof is becoming so ubiquitously used is because of social proof. <laughs> it's the popular thing to do. In fact, actually, uh, two of my colleagues, Ipsita Kular and uh, Michelle Klotz, have just actually written a piece about exactly that, that social proof is becoming popular purely because of social proof. But let's give another example by what I mean by the tactic as opposed to the underlying mechanism. So David Stromitz is a social psychologist over at Cornell University, um, did a study, I'm sure many of your readers might remember this particular study or maybe have read about it, where there's something a waiter or waitress can do towards the end of the meal, which will increase significantly the likelihood that the people dining in that restaurant will leave them a tip or an enhanced tip. And that's to simply put a mint down along with the check. You get about a three and a half percent increase in tips. Now, interestingly, if they put two mints down, you get a further increase. But the key insight is if they put one mint down along with the check, turn away, come back a couple of moments later and say, here, for you nice people, here's an extra tip. And you get this huge spike in tips. Now, that is the principle of reciprocity at work. Okay, we've given something, and in this instance, it's been given in an unexpected way, which likely heightens the potency, the obligation to you know kind of give back. In this case, by giving a slightly larger tip. Now, if every waiter and waitress now starts doing that, I would suggest that very, very quickly the effect becomes much diluted because everyone else is doing it, and you know people start to recognise what's actually going on. Does that mean then that as a result of not being influenced by that particular tactic of reciprocity, that those same people are not going to be influenced by a different reciprocal appeal or approach in the future? Absolutely not. So there, I think, is what I'm essentially trying to say here is that I think you're right about the use of a principle. It's a specific tactic. But the fact that people will then stop responding and giving back to others that are given to them before, no, I don't see that as yeah. likely. And it feels to me intuitively that the principle of reciprocity is so hardwired into us that, I mean, unless in your example, you're right to say, I suppose that if everyone is using a particular mechanism, it weakens its potency. But I think as a rule of thumb, I don't think sort of familiarity is sort of breeding immunization to these principles. I think it feels very hardwired to respond in a particular way. Yeah, you're right. It's quite a lazy way as well, if you think about it, if you're a communicator and all you're doing is simply saying, well, it's worked here, you know, I'm just going to apply it to everything. Well, this is one of, <laughs> of course, the great challenges of translating and replicating either from the lab into the messy real world, or indeed just taking one experiment and sort of superimposing the principle into your own context. That rarely works. Exactly right. Let's talk a little about one of your earlier books, The Small Big, Small Changes That Spark Big Influence, which of course you wrote not only with Bob, but also Noah Goldstein. Now, when it comes to winning an argument, our starting assumption often is you know, to provide more information, more reasons to believe, or indeed to deliver a very clear economic benefit, to dangle the carrot. But of course, human motivation doesn't always respond to this approach. And the small big argues that very small, subtle changes to a proposition, or indeed a communication, can have a disproportionately persuasive effect. Now, that's really rather exciting. This is the idea that one doesn't always need a big plan or a big investment. You know, one doesn't need to change the thrust of an argument, but rather maybe just tell a different story. It's that question of context again. So mm. what's going on here? I mean, what are the buttons that we need to be pressing to then to be winning people over? What's behind all this? Yeah, that's a good question. And so our argument in that book is that whilst there might be many thousands, probably tens of thousands, Daniel, of specific tactics, approaches that one could take to try and influence or persuade or engage an audience, be it an individual or a whole community of people. At their heart, what we found in the research was that the vast 
majority of the most successful approaches were aligned to one of just three fundamental human motivations. So the point we make in that book, and we've made consistently ever since, is that as a communicator, if you understand what these fundamental motivations are, and you align your message in a way that triggers one of these motivations, then the chances of your engagement, your persuasion appeal being successful go up to some extent, sometimes just a small amount in in some instances by quite a lot. The analogy that I like to use here is it's consider a kind of an electrical system. You know, if you go and flick the switch on your wall, the lights go on. Now, the switch doesn't provide the power. All the switch does is kind of connect the circuit. The power is already installed in the system. And a similar thing here with human behavior. You know, we have these three fundamental motivations. We're all kind of motivated to do what seemingly appears to be the accurate thing, what seems to be the connected thing, and what seems to be the thing that is good for our ego. So that accuracy, connection, and ego. Those are already installed in all of us through those mechanisms of evolution and socialization that you described a few moments ago. What our job is, is to recognize what is the switch that turns them on in a particular context. That's the small thing, the flicking of the switch. The big thing, of course, is what's already installed. It just unleashes that power. And that's exactly what we describe in the small big, a collection of these switches that in certain contexts seem to have this ability to unleash that motivation. And as a result, the behavior follows. I mean, does this essentially sit alongside thaler sunstein nudge theory, or is this something different? Well, it does. Yeah. I mean, you could argue that these small bigs, these switches are essentially nudges. Absolutely. But they are largely nudges that are focused on the social aspect of change. Some nudges are what seem to be relatively small changes are actually structurally rather big. You know, think about defaults, for example, into your 401k. I mean, that as a concept is quite a small thing to do, but to implement it is a huge structural systematic change. So we focused primarily in this book on what is the smallest possible thing that a communicator can do? Because oftentimes when we are communicating, we are in the business of influencing and persuading others. We don't necessarily have a whole host of resources and expensive options at our our fingertips. We are constrained by resources, limitations, time, these kind of things. So it's those small things that are essentially part of the social aspect of change as opposed to broader environmental or economic ones, right? Yeah, because I was wondering from the research, you know, where you saw these small changes making the biggest differences, what the sort of the examples are there. Are you more interested in where small bigs relate to more sort of maybe personal one-to-one interactions, or is it more about larger scale experiments? Well, both. I think, you know, one of the things that certainly happened over these last 10 years, which is incredible and absolutely to be encouraged, is this desire to bring these behaviorally informed changes into the real world, you know, whether it's getting people to turn up to hospital appointments, whether it's getting people to pay their taxes on time, or latterly, something that my team and I have been involved in quite a lot these last couple of years, encouraging people to, you know, get vaccinated because of the COVID pandemic, these kind of things. And what these environments have allowed us to do is to run tests and experiments that show that these small changes can have remarkably big impacts sometimes, and that they do work in the real world as opposed to in that kind of controlled, sterile laboratory condition that perhaps previously the information has actually come from. That's super exciting is that we are you know, increasingly creating labs in the real world. Constraints of that, of course, you know, you need to recognize that the world is messy and it's hard to infer 
you know, causality in those kind of real world environments. But you know, if you're in business and you're faced with a question, given my limited resources, what is the most effective thing I can do in this situation to deliver the outcome that I'm looking for? Incredibly instructive. Absolutely. Because one of the challenges, however, of translating BS into the wild, as we touched on, is knowing then which behavioral principle to test and then how one might combine them for extra potency. So I wonder, you know, is it just a question of sort of playing around with ingredients and seeing what tastes good? Or can we in the real world be more scientific about how we construct our experiments? We can. In the same way as a good chef knows what spices will enhance a dish and which spices you wouldn't put anywhere near a dish, the same is becoming true in behavioral science as well. So in a given situation, and if you think about it, there really are only, again, in the same way as there's only a handful of fundamental motivations that are at the center of why we do anything, there are really only a handful of challenges that we face. Again, manifested in tens of thousands of different ways, but generally speaking, you know, there are blockers to influence. One is the relationship. If we don't have a connection with someone or if we don't have that ability to access an individual or a group, that is a blocker for influence, for change. So that should be the focus. But sometimes we do have you know, good connections with people. The challenge we face is one of uncertainty. They need to be reassured of our proposition. And so that would suggest a different set of propositions and approaches that you would actually use. And in other situations, we've got an action and implementation challenge. You know, People are aware of the situation. They know that they need to do it. They just haven't gotten around to do it. And that might cause us to look at kind of more action-orientated approaches. So I think you, know, you can, if you are versed in these things, make good judgments about those insights that are most likely to be useful in certain contexts. But I wouldn't suggest that you would always just close the door and close your mind there. You know, One of the beauties about this wonderful set of insights is that we do have the opportunity to you know, test various different individual and combinations of them as well. But I think you can shortlist them pretty quickly. You can prioritize them in such a way so that you focus on the ones that are likely to have the best effect and importantly, are unlikely to have any unintended consequences, which is something that is also really important to consider. You might win in this situation, but then if you create a larger problem down the line, then probably not. Yeah, lots of good examples of unintended consequence. But I think the principle is in the real world is about taking small steps, experimenting, iterating, rather than just taking the results of a prior experiment and assuming. And I think if you're trying to build you know, behavioral science credibility in your corporation, it's critical to do that because I think you'll blow a lot of credibility quite quickly if you try and run too fast. Exactly right. If all you have is social proof or a norm message, you're like the guy that has a hammer. Everything looks like a nail. Right, exactly. I mean, the subject is just so rich. And with that, let's talk about actually your more recent book, just building the argument here, which is Messengers, who we listen to, who we don't, and why. The titles of your books are so self-explanatory, it's great, because then I can just sort of say the title. And I think there's a strong assumption that everyone should have a pretty strong sense of what we're talking about here. But that book, nevertheless, continues this exploration of influence and persuasion and what makes some people better communicators than others. And it also sort of addresses some big topics like trust, credibility, information, and truth. Some very complicated questions. It's not just about the sort of the techniques that we use, but it starts to sort of get to the heart of some of the real issues that we face in our society today. And as you say, as a prelude to the book, and I quote you, you know, we live in a world where proven facts, verifiable data, and actual truths are freely and widely available. And then you ask the obvious follow-on questions. Why then 
our self-confident ignoramuses so often believed <laughs> and why our thoughtful experts dismissed? I mean, I couldn't put it better myself. This feels the question of global politics of the last five years, in which case, let me ask you, why is that so? Well, I think one way to answer that question is to describe a situation that I would be confident that the vast majority of your listeners, Daniel, will have experienced. And it's that situation where you have an idea, maybe it's to make something at work a little bit more efficient or enjoyable or profitable or whatever it may be. And you go in and you present your idea and you're you know, you've convinced yourself it's a good idea. And you present your idea and it basically falls on deaf ears. And that is kind of frustrating, I think, when you're not listened to, when your idea is dismissed. But that frustration rapidly becomes an annoyance when someone else comes along and says the exact same thing that you have said. And now everyone thinks it's the best idea ever. And it was something that Joe Dr. Joe Marks, my, my co-author and I, had increasingly witnessed that in this information overloaded world, one way to essentially navigate your way through all the information that was being presented to you, often conflicting, was to not pay attention to the message at all, the information at all, and instead focus your attention on who was delivering that message. So, you know, we coin this phrase in an increasingly information overloaded world, the messenger has become the message. And that's exactly it. What are the factors and what the research that we did was what are the factors that allow audiences to reliably rely on a piece of information or a piece of advice, not on the basis of its truth or wisdom, but rather on the characteristics of who is delivering it. And as you rightly have said, it's everywhere. Not a day, I think, has gone by since we wrote the book where you can't see a headline in the newspaper that doesn't play this messenger effect out really clearly. How is it that someone can say that? There's clearly false, yet for some, they'll be believed. And so what is it about strong communicators that enables them to land a message when others struggle? I mean, even when they are economical with the truth, what are the mechanisms they use? I mean, we could pick real life examples. I mean, much has been you know, written about Donald Trump. So let's perhaps not trample over obvious ground, but or Boris Johnson even more topically. But maybe you could try and pick apart what made Trump and still makes him, by the way, such a powerful messenger. Well, you use the word strong, and I think that's an insightful one, an important one. So what the research essentially shows is that we can largely categorize messengers in one of two ways. We have hard messengers. So hard messengers essentially get heard because they are perceived to have some status over their audience. So it might be their socioeconomic position, they're rich and powerful and famous. It might be that they are competent, you know, they have expertise, they have a legitimacy, and people listen to them because they know more than others. So they have an instrumental value. It could be that they are attractive. And here we're talking about physical attractiveness. So no surprise why lots of brands will put, you know, kind of beautified images of who we all aspire to look like on their product. And the last one is dominance, a dispositional personality characteristic where certain people essentially believe that the world is essentially a victory place and to the victor goes the spoils. And there are very good evolutionary reasons why we would want to often follow people that you know have these characteristics, one or more of them. If someone is seen to be rich and famous, maybe that is a signification of a just world. They've worked hard. They have a set of capabilities and characteristics that afford them that position. And though therefore, if we follow them, maybe we will aspire and get to that position too. 
dominance as well. I mean, probably what's interesting, and here's the conflict, I guess, is that go back many, many years, centuries, hundreds of centuries, it would make sense to have someone that was in charge of the tribe, was the dominant character, was able to kind of lead into battle, provided a very useful social role. Probably less so in arguably what is a more democratic society. But what's interesting is how we still will often default to the dominant messenger, particularly in situations of uncertainty and anxiety. So no surprise that you see these dominant messengers now, we don't need to name them, we know who they are, who will deliberately create disruption, distrust, anxiety in an environment, knowing full well then that their dispositionally dominant character is what people will actually look to. They create the environment where they're going to be needed. So those are the hard messengers. They have some form of status, and it's that perceived status that allows us to potentially be kind of orientated towards what they say. But that's not to say that we always listen to hard messengers. There's the soft side of messengers as well. And we characterize soft messengers as those people that are heard because they have some sort of connection with their audience. We see them as warm or vulnerable or trustworthy or charismatic. And those are the traits that are largely functional when it comes to creating a connection to others. And that's what we describe in the book. But we also then describe, of course, those scenarios where we're more likely to be influenced by the harder type of messenger and those where the softer, more connected messenger is likely to be more useful to us. Yeah. Feels to me like too many political leaders in the world today over-index on status and dominance characteristics. They arguably lack competence and attractiveness, but on the softer qualities, you might pick out charisma as the obvious one that leaders like Trump, Johnson, Nigel Farage have, for example. I mean, do you think traits like competence, trust, and vulnerability are lost to politics, or can we regain them? Maybe that question is a little out of the sphere of the... This is a fascinating question. And I think one of the things that, well, let's talk about trust for a few moments, because I think one of the things that we need to make a distinction between here is truth and trust. They are not the same thing. Okay. So truth is objective, arguably evidence-based. So one question that we might like to ask ourselves is, how is it that some of these leaders that behave in this way that lie are able to increase their trustworthiness as a result? That sounds crazy, doesn't it? If someone lies to me, I trust them less. No, that's not the case at all. Joe, my co-author, did a piece of research in October 2019. Astonishing. Here's what he did. He surveyed voters here in the United Kingdom in the days after the Johnson administration prorogued parliament. It was subsequently found by the Supreme Court that the Prime Minister lied to the Queen. <laughs> this is not a diddy, diddy, not sure. Absolutely clear. They lied in order to prorogue parliament. Okay, here's what Joe did. He then went and asked voters in the United Kingdom, do you believe that Boris Johnson lied? And the vast majority, the overwhelming majority, Daniel, said yes, he absolutely did. Okay, follow-up question. What has that done to your level of trust in the Prime Minister? For half of them, it eroded it. For the other half, it increased their trust in him. How can you trust someone that lies to you? Here's the response. He told my lies. Curious. <laughs> he told what I, in principle, hold to be true. And this is the fascinating thing. And, you know, we start now to get into debates about polarization in society and identities. But it's really interesting, you know, look at, so the Washington Post over the course of Trump's tenure had a totalizer of the number of lies that they counted up. 
It ran to tens of thousands. But again, same thing for a certain proportion of the population. If anything, it increased their trust in him because his lies aligned to their fundamental principles, what they wanted to appreciate or want to know to be true. Which may be something about fighting the establishment machine. Yeah, it lies in the pursuit of something that is worthwhile for for us in that instance. So it's kind of interesting, this whole trust and truth thing. They're not the same thing. Do you think it's important always to tell the truth, or are there situations where it's acceptable to veer off it? I'm not entirely sure that I should speak to that, because that, I think, seems like a very personal conversation, maybe a debate that someone should be having with themselves. There is certainly no place for falsehoods and lies when it comes to the influence process for several reasons. The first is that from an ethical perspective, it's just not the right thing to do. But here's another reason, which is the down the line implications. Let's get back to these fundamental principles of Bob Cialdini's. Okay, The reason they're powerful is that they speak to those universal truths, those fundamental characteristics that we use to decide what the right thing to do is in all those everyday situations where we're not entirely sure what the right thing to do is, but we need to make a decision anyway. We're guided by those principles in these contexts. If someone lies as a result and moves us in a direction that's unhelpful or that costs us, I mean, morally, that's wrong. But what that does is it immediately labels that influencer as someone that can't be relied upon in the future. So if they want to kind of use these principles in a way that wins them in the short term and to hell with the future, they're not really interested in what happens in the future, then, well, that's when I think the label weapons of influence is an appropriate one. But for most people, my guess is certainly, I would like to think that everyone listening to your podcast or your loyal business followers, they're not interested in just winning today. They want to win tomorrow, the next day, and they want to win with people, not at the cost of others. And so to do so in an honest and responsible way seems to be the only way. Reminds me of a question I have been asked a few times, which is, how do you think about the issue that you know companies may use behavioral science techniques for evil rather than good? Now, you know, you can get into a debate about regulation and versus sort of guiding principles, but I think it's more for me a question of short-term versus longer-term view. If reputation and having some kind of moral judgment is important to you, and you're interested in using behavioral science for society and individual well-being and to help people make better choices, then you're on the right path. But I mean, as per this discussion, one can't help the fact that there will be some nefarious consequences. It makes me think, I mean, in the world of misinformation and fake news that we live in, as you say, I mean, how optimistic do you feel about influence and persuasion techniques being used for good rather than evil? Here's the first thing to respond to what you've just said there, because I think you're exactly right. But how do you not influence people? What is the opposite of influence? See, that's it. To say we can't use the influence process or behavioral science to do X, Y, or Z, you are stripping the humanity out of a communication and fine if it's a bot. But even then, I'm not entirely convinced that you can remove it completely. So the point is, is that everything is about influence. And if everything is about influence, it's largely, I think, our own responsibility to make sure that when we do do it, we do it in a way that is as ethical as it is effective. To the point to what to do about the broader challenge of fake news and who we believe and and who we don't. I mean, I have an idea. It's somewhat controversial and it got me into a bit of trouble when I first mentioned it a couple of years ago. But I think we have too many geography teachers. (laughs) Okay. And what I mean by that, bear with me on this one for a moment. Here in the United Kingdom, I believe the same to be true in the United States, Australia, other nations, that at the age of 16, 
between 40 and 50% of 16-year-olds will take some form of exam, a, you know, a higher, a GCSE, that kind of thing, in geography. Do you know what the percentage is for psychology? No idea. Low. It's very low. It's like the last time I looked, 1.2, 1.3%. Now, at the age of 18, when certain individuals get the opportunity to enroll in higher education, increasingly the number that are opting for a psychology or a behavioral science or some sort of social science higher education undergraduate degree, that trend is reversed. Significantly more are interested in why they think the way they do, how their mind works, the implications for society. It seems, I think, a little unfair that if something that is so fundamental to our humanity and our understanding, and these are not my words, Steven Pinker, okay, one of the most revered psychologists in the world, describes psychology as the hub subject, the hub subject. Okay, Why should we be limiting these insights to a group of people who are already established in terms of their thoughts, their belief systems at the age of 18, and require them to pay for it when these insights, you know, I think when you're 12, 13, 14, it's probably then is the time to know, why do I listen to this person and not that? Why are these people my friends? Why are these people not my friends? Why do I think this? And how come I don't think that? And that seems to me to be really, really important. Why are we waiting until much, much later in a young person's life to avail them of those insights and make them pay. That seems wrong. I think there's a bigger debate about, certainly in the UK, the narrow beam aspect of our education system and that we push kids to specialise far too young. And I think it's an old-fashioned system which needs refreshing, which is why I think the European baccalaureate has more going for it. There's a very interesting book by David Epstein called Range, which argues Mm. for greater generalisation and then specialism and that he makes the very the lovely analogy that you know when you're 18 and you start dating most people don't get married but to the first person they go on a date with so it should probably be with one's own sort of work and other personal interests it doesn't bode well normally if you just jump at the first thing that you might be interested in i mean he led wonderful examples whether it's from Roger Federer who played many sports until he specialized in tennis as a 16 year old or so or even van gogh who led a very sort of odd and tragic life until he became the painter that he was he tried many things all sorts of odd things. I mean, well, you started the conversation today about experimentation. <laughs> and we're back there. Yeah, I'm conscious of the time, but I want to just change tack before we conclude, because I know that one of the areas that you've taken behavioral science to is football, and particularly Premier League managers. And since I love both behavioral science and football, I'm fascinated to know more. I mean, were you advising them on influencing their players, building trust, delivering messages? Tell us about those engagements. So, well, let's talk about football more generally. Let's talk about sports management more generally as well, because I think I can't talk individually. That would be wholly inappropriate. But what's fascinating to me is is that if you are a, a football manager, regardless of where in the leagues that you operate, you do have an influence challenge. And that influence challenge is, is that you invariably hold all the responsibility, but little of the power. So you can't play that I'm the boss card. You may be the boss in name, but there are other individuals, perhaps organizations in the system that mean that as much as you might have played well in the last 10, 15 games, you know, it's the last couple of games that is what people are actually essentially appraising you on. We coin this phrase that uh, history is important, but recency keeps the score. And again, you know, even if you are a football manager, oftentimes your players will be more well-known and famous and have greater influence than you. And so 
that's the scenario here where the ability to influence without power, without a kind of organizational hierarchical position becomes really important. And so these principles, again, are at the forefront of any, and we don't have to talk about football, we don't have to talk about sports managers here, we can talk about any leader who increasingly will find themselves in positions where they need to get things done, but they either can't play the I'm the boss card, or playing the I'm the boss card has some downsides, has some particular implications. And so in those situations, Daniel, really all you have left are these universal principles of influence. And, you know, we essentially teach them as a toolkit, you know, what do they mean? How do I use them? And what are the situations where I should be using them? And how do I use them? And importantly, what are the situations where the use of a particular principle of influence is likely to be either morally questionable, or probably ineffective? I think football is an interesting example, by the way, because, of course, you have this imbalance. Oh, it's perhaps slightly paradoxical because of the money in the game. It means that, that players, and this is a function of the last 20 years particularly, have greater power than the manager. Although I think that there is a general rule of thumb in leadership anyway, which is that, you know, to have long-term influence, you need to do things like, you know, build trust and take people on a journey versus a sort of command and control model, which might work in the short term. I, I, th- I think, I mean, there's an interesting book by Sir Michael Barber, who built the delivery unit for Tony Blair at number 10, which yeah. talks about all these different leadership models. And by the way, there are certain scenarios and business problems where perhaps a more command and control model does work. But I think as a general rule, you know, sort of softer influence and building relationship is what wins in the end. You can't just tell people what to do and expect them to follow you. Oh, you're exactly right about that. So this is not to dismiss the influence of the incentive, the financial gain here. Of course, if two situations side by side are exactly the same, all the outcomes are the same, but one pays more, of course, that is actually going to play out. But we can all think of hundreds of examples, I'm sure, where we've often chosen a particular position or we've gone down a particular route, not on the basis of it's going to pay us the most, but it just feels like the right thing to do as well. You know, there are, and we know who they are, there are managers, not just in the sports arena and football, but in all our organizations as well, who seem to have that uncanny ability to kind of sway the undecided, influence, keep people committed to their cause. They don't necessarily pay the most. They don't necessarily have all the resources, but what they do have is influence. And the point I think that these books make is that we don't have to look on enviously at these individuals and think it's something they've been born with. We can learn how to become influential ourselves by applying ourselves to these fundamental set of behaviorally informed influence tools. I was tempted to ask you whether any managers you met who are really switched on to psychology and the workings of the mind, but discretion may prevent you from from divulging, but I don't know. All of them. All of them. (laughs) Good answer. Last question, then we'll do some quick fire. All your books are written with either one or two co-authors. What did you learn about each other in the writing processes? Yeah, it's a fascinating question. So it makes the process easier and at the same time more challenging. But what I think you get as a result is a much more rounded outcome. Bob uh, and Noah as well, they are I think if you ask them, they would say that they're primarily academics. I'm primarily a practitioner. And that kind of bit in the middle, you know, Paul Dolan would call the love in the middle of the Venn diagram. (laughs) That bit where we all intersect is the place that we end up landing. And what was really interesting to me, uh, the biggest learning for me was 
the debate and the discussions that we had about to what extent do we keep it purely scientific and to what extent do we kind of push a little bit and say, well, look, if this situation was replicated in this environment or in this organization, what might that actually look like? That to me was fascinating. So it did make the process a little bit more challenging. But at the same time, I think we both, or the three of us, in the case of The Small Big and in the case of Yes, the first book, we came out with, I think, each of us a real appreciation of what our other two co-authors brought to the party. Yeah, I'm sure more brain power and experience adds richness to the writing. But as you say, I think when I talk to other authors who've gone down a similar path, you you know, the, the, most would probably find it easier just to sort of knock out a book themselves. But perhaps the result isn't as interesting as what I've taken from it. Shall we conclude with some quick fire? Let's do it. Right. That was a rhetorical question. So that's the right answer. You did <laughs> okay. warn me. Yeah. I did warn you. So it's not a total shock. Right. What's the kindest thing anyone's ever done for you? Oh, I think the kindest thing is to listen. Good answer. No, I like that. Nice and simple. What's your most powerful memory? <laughs> is it odd that I don't remember what my most powerful memory is? It's an original answer. I suspect, actually, it's... Now I'm thinking about it, so it's going to be elevated in my mind, so I'm going to assign importance to it now. But I do remember, so my father ran his own business. He was an engineer and pretty much struggled, you know, when my sister and I were kind of at school, worked every hour. And during the summer holidays, we'd go and help him out, you know, in factory, in the workplace, that kind of thing. And perhaps what it taught me, but what I remember from that is just a a resilience, a kind of grit. I'm not sure if that's the right word, but that kind of self-reliance. So I think that's an important thing that I remember from my past that I'd like to still think that I'm using today. Great. Which book do you gift most regularly, excepting your own? So the book I gift the most, unsurprisingly, would be Bob's Influence. And here's a sense of how often we do gift this book. I have been able to negotiate with the publishers an author's discount, even though I didn't write the book. (laughs) (laughs) So frequently are you gifted. So frequently, yeah. yeah. That's pretty good. What's your Desert Island music? I think it would be a new order. Okay, good. Penultimately, winding down away from work, how do you spend your time? Well, one of the things that's actually a really nice thing to do now, of course, at the end of the week is just a a cold beer in the garden. So I live just north of London. So we're in that period of the year where we can do that a little bit more regularly. I totally sympathize with that. Tell us something interesting about yourself most people don't know. I used to sell drugs continue? I mean, proper, you know, legal drugs in this instance. This is actually how I met Bob Cialdini. So I was going through the ranks of a big healthcare pharmaceutical company and, you know, got promoted way above my level of capability, which is why I reached out to Bob to look at how, you know, we could use some of his insights in the organization. But yeah, I spent some time selling antibiotics to doctors and vaccines to travel centers. Fantastic. And look, with that, Steve, let me thank you enormously for joining me today and sharing so much rich insight from all your years of experience and research at the coalface of influence and persuasion science. You've not only shared some of the theory, but importantly, shared lots of examples to bring it all to life and make it real and very alive for everyone listening today. So thank you so much. It's good talking to you, Daniel. Thank you. Great pleasure. There ends my chat with Steve. I'd be really keen to hear what you thought of it. I find him an incredibly articulate, clear explainer and storyteller of some of the timeless principles in the behavioural science canon. 
Alongside Cialdini, Steve is really at the very forefront of research and application of influence and persuasion techniques, so it feels to me a privilege to have him with us today. Do drop me a line at a load of BS podcast at gmail.com or on Twitter at Daniel SJ Ross, and I'll always reply personally to each and every one of you. It would be great to hear from you. Next time, join me in conversation with economist at the University of Chicago, John List, who recently wrote the book The Voltage Effect, How to Make Good Ideas Great and Great Ideas Scale. John, by the way, is also chief economist at Walmart and was formerly in that role at both Uber and Lyft. So suffice to say, John has some great tales to tell. See you next time.